0: Hey folks, we're back again. This time we have uh, Simon Woolley, editor um, extraordinaire, the man that launched Retro Cars magazine, for which we are forever grateful. Currently editor of uh, Classic Ford and a contributor to Speedhunters in the past as well. He is a very knowledgeable, very well experienced uh, chap within the uh, world of magazines and um, he's also a great friend of Retro Rides and we love him dearly. So uh, welcome Simon
1: thank you hello <laughs>
0: uh, how are you today
1: uh, I'm good actually I've had six espresso so I'm raring to go
0: absolutely buzzing perfect okay so I'm gonna start with our first question of uh, why cars why is you why do you like cars
1: I have to pin that squarely on my dad I'm afraid like quite a lot of people he when I was a kid me and my brother we were obsessed because he always had interesting cars either as stuff in the garage or the cars he used to just drive to work in or drive us to school or on holiday. So whatever tat BL were putting out in the 70s, generally my dad had an example of it. And so, we, (laughs) yeah, that's where it all started.
0: That's great. That's great. Anything um, particularly stand out from uh, the the, uh, BL tat that your dad had?
1: He had about three, maybe four SD1 Rovers in a go. I think he started off with the 2-litre and hated it. And then he obviously got a V8 then he got a Vanden Pla and we just thought they were supercars they were just nothing else like he'd had before so I think out of all of them those particularly stand out I mean we we, I remember driving down to Spain in one of them I, I can't imagine how much that must have cost in fuel at the time but yeah it was just it was always an adventure because you knew you were in something a little bit better than a lot of the <laughs> rubbish that was around at the time even though it probably wasn't particularly well built but um i don't remember ever breaking down i mean he had, a, he had a black sd1 uh v8 for a while um but he he literally had it for weeks because for whatever reason i can't remember why now it came without any power steering and he absolutely hated it and we used to live in this tiny cottage uh with a really narrow uh gateway into the sort of the drive in front of the house and every night coming home from work he would you could hear him outside swearing trying to get <laughs> the car into this space you know heaving on this steering wheel but um yeah he, well i mean we were just he had a dolomite sport. he had 2.5 triumphs uh then he got into E 28 bmws um when sort of very early 80s when they were probably about as cheap as you could get them he had a series one e-type for a while that he did a few bits on and um obviously it was only a two-seater but me and my brother were quite happy just lying down in the back on the sort of boot boards and we'd go everywhere in that car that was amazing to have that then in this sort of you know silly little market town in the middle of nowhere it just felt like something else
0: yeah, I should imagine you uh, felt uh, kings of the world in that. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, my—I mean, I'm sure my mum to this day still despairs because obviously, my brother, both my brother and I ended up working in the sort of car industry in various different ways, and so I'm sure she had these dreams of us doing something else completely. But yeah, the—I think from sort of you know. You know when you're sort of eight or nine and you're such an impressionable age, I, I don't think you've got any choice really at that point. You just end <laughs> up predestined to do predestined to at that point. Yeah. It's like, yeah. You know, uh, one of his sons, Tom Ravenscroft, so obviously a really big DJ now. I mean, he's obsessed with new music. I think he's just, you know, that's because that's what his dad did. And that's what you end up doing.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you're right. You, you end up, there's a, uh, an inflection point, I think, where either you reject everything or that's what it becomes. Um, I think that's uh, probably a reasonably a good bet around, as you say, around eight eight years old, and uh, uh, you're, you're somewhat set in terms of your your interests and hobbies. Um, so, what's your own personal car history? What was your What was your first car?
1: I was when I was about fifth, well, fourteen onwards, I became obsessed with motorbikes. I mean, this was sort of early 80s and so all the two-stroke Yamahas were big then like the the RD 350s and 250s and I just thought they were something else and so I was always going to go down the road of getting a bike and you know I'm, I was just I'd had posters on my wall of power of Yamahas and that's what I wanted to do but my dad uh, he he like a lot of young people in the sort of 50s and 60s he had loads of motorbikes and he also had loads of accidents and so every time the subject was raised he would like raise a leg raise a trouser leg to show me like one of his eight inch scars from where he'd fallen off or he's got a particularly bad one on his stomach where he came off um so yeah he he always pushed me away from that and and he used to tell me that oh you should get a mini because it's like a motorbike but on four wheels they're like go-karts and I stupidly believed him <laughs> so yeah, my, my first car was uh, a mini and I ended up having four or four of them in a row because I, I just got really into them and they were so cheap you you could buy one for 10 quid I mean it, it didn't last very long but you just got rid of it and bought another one they were just ridiculous so yeah, I, I had a couple of saloons, and then I got into the estates because I read somewhere that they handled slightly better. So I had um, a, a Mark II Woody Traveller, and then I got a Mark One, an all-steel one without the wood, which was even back then was fairly rare. So yes, that's unusual, yeah. Yeah, but they were great because although they were horrendous for rust, they were so easy to work on, and that's where I sort of cut my teeth in pulling cars apart, and I got really into tuning up the a-series engines because i bought david bizard's book
0: uh, can i can say um, did you did you have david Bizard I mean, um tuning the a-series engine book
1: yeah I, I i must bore people stupid because even today i still talk about that book because it was just such an eye-opener i'd never read anything where someone had gone into so much detail into every single aspect of an engine and i would just quite happily sit but back then when you could you know just sit in the evening and read this book and try and absorb all this information because he just went through absolutely everything and it was just so clear that you couldn't help but not get drawn into it and because all the stuff was so cheap back then if if you tried something and it didn't work you just buy another one and start again so so yeah that was that was really good and for quite a while I wanted to be an engineer I was I was just thinking yeah this is what I want to do but I I've always struggled with maths and I tried to do it at college, went for an interview and failed miserably. So I thought um, I need to go and do something else instead.
0: Well, that actually segues beautifully into, uh, how you kind of ended up working in magazines. So, um, going from wanting to be an engineer, finding out it, it wasn't for you for various reasons. So, uh, uh, how did you end up working in the magazine industry?
1: Um, that was, <laughs> that was kind of by accident. I, I, I've, the three things i've always been really passionate about cars magazines and music and uh particularly when i was a teenager i i was just music was one of the things in my life that i just lived for more than anything and so i became quite obsessed with record sleeves i mean this is the era when factory records were big and so peter savile was doing these amazing sort of creations for bands like new order and a certain ratio, and every single one was different, and they always had a concept. And so, if you went out on a Saturday and bought a twelve-inch or an LP, if you had enough money, you come home and you just, as well as getting into the music, you just be absorbed into this world of design. And so, for quite a long time, I went. I wanted to be a record sleeve designer, and I went. Uh, I went to college. I did a. Uh, foundation course and then went off to do uh, an hnd down in taunton which funnily enough is where i first met Bryn muscle and also bruce holder so yeah so that was my plan and uh, and then the cd age came along and i was like i don't want to do this these are rubbish <laughs> you know <laughs> how can you create this amazing visual concept in a you know on a a bit of plastic with a sleeve inside that's what 12 centimeters square and i became a bit dis- disheartened and Uh, this course in particular H&D course it was brutal I mean it really weeded out the the ones that were set to do stuff and those that were just going to sort of bumble along and after a year of that I thought I'm I can't do this I'm just going to end up designing Argos catalogues for the rest of my life no disrespect to people that do that for a living but um, I just couldn't see myself doing it so I left the course um And then ended up working in a record shop for a year, working out what I wanted to do. And back then, this is pre, uh, you having to pay for your tuition fees, I worked out that I still had three years worth of funding available from the the council for a course. I thought, right, I'm going to do a degree. I don't care what it is, but I just need to do something because I don't want to work in this shop for another five years, even though I quite enjoyed it. Um, So I went off to do a film studies course because I was quite into film as well, and yeah, again, nothing relevant at all, but it sort of sowed a seed, I guess, because I came out and I finished the course, didn't know what to do. And whilst I was on holiday, I saw a, an advert in The Guardian for um, a sub editor, a junior writer on Mini Magazine, which was then published by ANS Publishing in Gloucester, which I wasn't living anywhere near at the time. Um, and obviously had the mini connection still. So I applied for that and got the job and that sort of started it all off really. Um, and again, that was a real trial by fire because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I didn't know anything about magazine craft, even though I was obsessed with magazines. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really intensive, but I learned a lot, especially in that first year and the, uh, the then production manager, she was, (laughs) she was fairly brutal so you had to learn very quickly um which was grim at the time but in hindsight has done me a world of favors because you just when you need to turn stuff out and turn it around quickly you can just do it now so so yeah so that was good so I got into that very quickly um and the whole sort of idea of magazine craft really grabbed me as well and so, really, I was doing two out of my three passions as a job, so I landed off the B. I, I was not doing bad. too bad yeah, I mean, the money was dreadful, but it 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 didn't matter back then because I didn't have a mortgage, you know, and so you sort of found a way to live, so it was fine
0: yeah yeah definitely it uh I think that that's one of those things with those early career jobs, particularly actually in the era that you were doing them that um, you could kind of scrape by on what you were getting. I think nowadays it's uh, um, slightly changed and a lot of those things tend to be kind of almost free. You have to be willing to work for free for a while, which kind of sucked. But back, um, I guess, what would this have been, sort of early 90s or it's, late 90s?
1: Uh, first proper job was um, 1996, October 96. I started yeah. at AS, So, yeah.
0: Yeah, you can just, you could sort of, get on by by the time the turn of the millennium came around it was um a little bit harder to get those entry-level jobs so it it was good for uh good for an entry level um which is nice um so you uh you worked on minimag um and you stayed on that or did you end up moving around or 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 what what is your your path then because when i first um uh, met you was in 2004 um, and we'll talk about the origin of Retro Cars magazine. But at that point, you were the editor of Retro Cars magazine. So you've gone from in that sort of 10 year period um, from literal entry level that really know what you're doing, but very enthusiastic and getting taught to editing your own magazines. So how did that pass come around? How, how did you get through that?
1: It was luck again. I've I'd, I'd been doing mini magazine for a year and um, classic Ford magazine which was also published by them, that had been going for about a year at the time. And that grew out of another magazine called Ford Heritage, which again grew out of Fast Ford Magazine, which has been, been running for donkey's years. And so Classic Ford was a, a little bit different because it was starting to tap into this whole idea of buying classic cars. And the, the then editor, a guy called Ian Air, it was a bi-monthly and he, he just couldn't commit the time to, doing a the magazine was doing reasonably well and they thought right we can make this a monthly title but he wasn't able to commit to that and so this position came available and they said well do you want to do it and i'm like yeah, <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> So again i was thrown in at the deep end because although i'd sort of grown up around all these cars and you know mucking around with minis i had mates with mark one fiestas and mark two escorts and so you know i was more than au fait with them but you know, at that point, the, the sort of nitty-gritty of picking apart the differences of a a Mark One Escort Mexico to a, a GT were just beyond me. But um, yeah, I, I I said, yeah, I'm doing this. So that was that was kind of the beginning of the sort of the the sort of regeneration of those those cars because they, I mean, they've been painfully ignored by the main classic cars magazines that back then and you could argue they're still a little bit to this day slightly snobbish about Ford brands so we for quite a long time we just had the whole thing to ourselves and so we just ran with it and it was great I loved it and did classic Fords. so that was 98 so I did that for just under four years before um eventually got the guy to do retro cars but I mean again that was a the sort of process of getting that off the ground was a really long gestation process, quite frustrating. But but in the meantime, I was having the time of my life doing classic Ford. It was brilliant. I loved it.
0: That's superb. Uh, yeah, the um it's good good era to be involved in uh, magazines in general, but um car magazines, particularly if you've got that niche that you kind of own completely. That that was uh, that one must have been uh, more than a little bit pleasant to uh, be involved in.
1: It was a strange time for magazines because the the traditional car magazines the the tuning ones like triple c cars and car convergence i mean they were it's sad now but they were dying because they 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 just you know they they weren't keeping up with the times and so fast car magazine had shifted its attention from tuning to you know they started to embrace the what we became known as the max power scene obviously max power came along in 1993 that turned that whole sector of the car magazine industry completely on its head because the growth of those two at that point was just outrageous and in a lot of ways i classic ford and mini magazine all those single mark titles that were dealing with the slightly older cars they were protected from that because i mean max power fast car still was doing stuff with mark one escorts occasionally out revs but um, really we were just left to just get along and do what we wanted with it and so yeah it was great and it was really exciting but also at that point a big change and compared to what happens you know another sort of six seven years later I mean it's it seems insignificant now but it was a big deal at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think um, sort of are living through things, they uh, they probably felt felt a big deal, and then in retrospect, you're like, oh, in comparison to this, it's not so so much. But then, you know, at the time, I, I you know I remember as a consumer, Max Power just suddenly being everywhere and in, in everything. So within the industry, it must have been even more obvious how how big a title that became.
1: But well, it was it was just massive. I mean, it was it was beyond you know, a niche automotive interest, it was mainstream. You would, mm. you know, there were lads because unfortunately it was, you know, almost exclusively male, young males buying the magazine, but that's what it was at the time. You know, they they would be buying a magazine because they were buying into the lifestyle and the brand, not just because they were interested in, you know, putting body kits on running five turbos or whatever. It was just, yeah, it just became something else.
0: So, um, in well 2003 2000 yeah 2003 it would have been um the launch of retro cars magazine but you would have been working on it for a while before that so what is the germination of the retro cars magazine project like how did that all start
1: i (laughs) i i'd grown up reading custom car street machine like a lot of people of my age um and as well as the the more sort of hot-roddy stuff, they would always do features on, you know, humdrum cars that have been mucked around with, so Chevette's and Fiat 131s and things like that, and so as, alongside car and car conversions at that point. So at that point in the late 90s, with Triple C sort of starting to fade away, there wasn't really anything around that was catering for those interests because Street Machine and Custom Car would we were really digging in at that point to just focus on the the custom car and hot rod scene and i used to chat with people and say oh i really miss you know there's nothing around like this especially uh a couple of friends of a photographer a friend of mine john hill who used to write for street machine and also a guy called chris tilbury that at that point was editing Fast Forward magazine and you know we we loved the, the street machine everyone's got their sort of favorite era of Car magazines, but I think the late '80s, early '90s street machine for me, particularly, was the one that I was most influenced by. So yeah, so there was at that point there was nothing around then, and when used to go out on shoots and meet, you know, readers for Classic Ford, quite often their mates would be there, and you say, "Oh, what do you drive then?" And they say, oh, "I've got an Avenger, or I've got a, you know, a, a a Mini or whatever," but I'm not interested in Mini magazine. I'm more interested in doing this and that, and so at that point, I thought, well, that would be a market for this, and so I started sort of haranguing the publisher at the time, writing endless proposals, because he'd just fobbed me off, saying, oh, I don't think it's right, go and do some research, so I'd put together these massive dossiers of, you know, slightly made-up statistics and things, trying to find all these things that I could convince him, and eventually, after 18 months of badgering him, he eventually gave in, and sort of gave me the tentative go-ahead to actually start doing some proper work on it so this would have been oh, maybe late 2001 and so I was still doing this whilst doing classic Ford at the time and uh, we had to go up to the, the then magazine distributors to do a presentation about it um, and they, they they loved the idea and they they in hindsight they probably got a bit too carried away with it because they thought it was going to be the next thing and so they, you know, all of a sudden this sort of what I thought would be a fairly low key launch that we would then build up like we did with Classic 4 just became this huge sort of uh, big deal that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, quite honestly, was probably never going to live up to their expectations in terms of circulation. But it, by then it was too late that, you know, the, the ball had started rolling. So we just had to run with it. So, yeah, I finished... Uh, working on Classic Ford full time at the end of 2002. And then I had just under five months to get the first issue of Retro Cars out the door, which doesn't, which sounds like a long time, but um, magazine launches are, <laughs> the workload is just unbelievable. Um, and it, yeah, it was a, a really intensive and stressful five months, to put it mildly.
0: That's <laughs> the thing you're going from absolutely nothing to defining your entire magazine really in your first issue so uh well so your how did you then how did you approach that so what what how did you decide what was going to be in it and and kind of you know you you are pulling something out of nowhere so you you've effectively got your research that you've done and the sign off from the publisher so they're expecting whatever it is you've sold them to expect um but in your head did you know kind of what a first issue would contain or were you like building it up in those five months to go oh this is what it's actually going to be when we get to get to pen to paper
1: yeah I mean I would have had I mean it's hard to remember now but um (laughs) I I would have yeah I would have had the whole magazine flat planned in my head I could have just you know splurged it out as to my sort of dream first issue and that probably would have been very slowly eroded away as as uh the sort of reality of doing it came to fruition. I mean I was lucky in a way in that I knew exactly where to start because I had the contacts I knew you had the cars um, and how to get everything together so i was i you know I wasn't going in completely blind but I I knew it had to at that point had to focus on a particular sort of era of cars and tuning because that was where the biggest interest lay and where no one else was really doing much about at that point. And so it was really just trying to with that first issue, like you said, just trying to encapsulate the whole idea behind it in one issue and try and convince people that although we weren't going to be able to do that in subsequent issues in such a way it was you know it was strong enough to sort of sow the seed so that we could take it and run with it but yeah it was it was taking all sort of everyone's favorite sort of what you might call humdrum cars back then of the 60s 70s and 80s and just you know channeling people's ideas about what you can do to them and mucking around with them and putting it into print yeah, it was
0: um interesting i've Occasionally, as a retro cars over the years that it existed, um, changed editors a few times. Um, a couple of those editors will attest to the fact that I would occasionally send them the first five issues of the magazine to remind them of what it's supposed to be like. So well done on that,
1: <laughs> yeah. I, you, we, I know we've talked about this before, but I, I, I mean, the magazine had to change, and oh, yeah, for sure, I, for sure. I mean, I, I, I did it for a year and I, I was burnt out. I, I couldn't do it anymore because it it just, it would just completely destroyed me. And I, I, at that point, I, we just had our first child and I was just exhausted and I, I couldn't keep it up. And I knew that it needed someone else with a, to come in and sort of move it off to the next level. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, when we started it, I kind of, planned out the first year's worth of issues and what I wanted to do in the different themes and I've more or less managed to stick to that but and so I probably content wise probably put too much stuff in those first issues because I think after that although you don't run out of ideas you end up repeating yourself to a certain extent so if I'd have thought about it in with a bit more longer term uh planning in mind I wouldn't have done so much I think because yeah, it was just ridiculous. If you look back now at the the breadth of the content and the stuff, it's just, oh my God, (laughs) can you really see that? But it was great great fun. And uh, again, I I say this a lot, but as much as you love the cars, the people are what make it, and I met so many interesting people in that period, i mean that i'm still in touch with now and help shape everything i've done since so it was a really good experience from that front
0: yeah i didn't realize um until we did the podcast with uh brin that uh, brin muscle um go back and check it, it's one of the early ones um the, you he wasn't involved in it like Right from the um, uh, what's the word? concept stage, I, like he came in and did the A to Z of retro. But I figured doing the A to Z of retro, he must have been involved with it for longer than he was. Um, so that, that was uh, that was an interesting thing to find out that you you you'd got this band of people that kind of got the whole thing that you you were giving a name to. Finally, um, so so that was uh, that was an, an interesting thing that that there were people out there kind of poised and ready in this world that didn't really yet exist and you are now defining uh, that, that was good
1: yeah i mean i i felt bad at the time because i i didn't talk to Bryn about the magazine until um probably just before it was announced it was going to be launched and the, the the reason behind that was because as i alluded to before the distributors uh they got so behind it that they um you know they really there was a lot of money at stake basically in the launch and um so we had to be really quiet and careful about who we talked to it about and because brin being brin is so well connected he knows a lot of people uh he had a lot of friends that uh, ended up working at emap on max power and practical classics and that and so i as much as i wanted to i wasn't able to chat to him about the magazine because i I didn't want to make him accidentally slip some info that would then might you know harm the initial launch. So I, yeah, it was a it was a, a strange time in that respect because all you want to do when you've got an idea is share it with people and say, How t- tell me know? about it. <laughs> Especially someone like Bryn, who you know will then go off on a complete different tangent and open up another door for you that you hadn't thought of. So, yeah, I, I'm sorry, Green, but...
0: <laughs> no, no, it, it, it was more that, the from my point of view, that there were people kind of poised, ready for this world to exist, but it, it, you were busy kind of defining it, and then you were like, this now exists, and they could just dive into this kind of already half-filled swimming pool of um, car goodness, to make a very strange analogy.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, as soon as the, you know, as soon as it, it was public, I... You know, I was straight on to Britain saying, oh, I'm doing this, blah, 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 blah. what about this, what about that? And yeah, I mean, he he was particularly he was him at the time was great in introducing to me to uh, people in the in the air called Volkswagen mm. scene, particularly that 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 was a, a big help. And obviously, he, he ended up writing and later photographing, photographing, sorry, some fairly memorable shoots on those early issues.
0: Yeah it uh, it was good to and uh, obviously with John, John Hill as well um who uh, I think shot one of my features for you at some point although that might have been a classic ford um thing uh anyway uh, but yes it was uh it, it defined kind of what we did so then you did the show so this oh, this one thing actually I have I have a curious thing about so ANS publishing in the UK is the same as ASA, ANS publishing in Sweden Am I right? Yeah, in thinking that? I mean,
1: it's uh, it was two guys that started it, Albison and Schoberger. I think were their original names, and they. I mean, technically, the the company in Sweden was called Fabas. I can't remember what that stood for, and so they were the parent company, um and then the UK they had a, a, a stake in the the UK version. But my understanding at the time is that the the then MD of the UK operation, a guy called Peter Minnis was he He had the controlling state but I mean it was because it was a privately owned company you didn't really know what was going on but yeah, yeah but I
0: mean, a, a, there is um, a retro cars magazine in Sweden and I wondered whether or not it was related or not because it's published by ANS publishing um, I, out there. I
1: didn't know that I mean that's that's quite likely I mean back then their, their main title was a, uh, a magazine called Bill Sport which was kind mm. of across between yeah. Sport and uh triple c so
0: yeah it's, it is actually called bill sport um retro car um oh. uh, when you when you see it i've got a copy around here somewhere um if this was a video i could show you but it's not so there we are <laughs> um but yeah I, I i always wondered about the uh the connection between those two things um and which came first and i'm assuming from the sound of it you came first as a, as a big launch and then they're like right we'll try this in sweden because uh Obviously Sweden has a, a fairly strong retro car scene, so that's pretty sweet.
1: Yeah, I mean they I mean the, the guys on the the the, the editorial stuff in at Fabas then they were I mean they were really good helping. they unlocked a few doors in when we were starting to go down the the road of featuring some of the, the Gap bill cars. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was they were really helpful and I mean just, I mean it's you can get cynical about it, but basically People that work on car magazines are just enthusiasts. I mean, it's it's not a very well-paid profession, and, and so you do it for the love. And generally, you know, there's a reason why they're doing this, and it's because they're obsessed with the car. So wherever you are in the world, whether it's a magazine or a blog or a website, or whatever, it's it, it's all, you know, it's the same thing. It's this ridiculous obsession with cars. And
0: yeah, Yep. <laughs> I know that story.
1: you old older cars that have been mucked about with
0: yeah definitely um yeah i think uh everyone's doing it for for the passion at this point uh you're well you just said you kind of burnt out from doing the retro cars thing um and then you went back to classic ford um was that just because it was um a a slightly easier time whilst you were um raising newborns and such like
1: um that no i actually fast afterward oh, I um, I do apologize. Yeah I it was um at that point it didn't uh have an editor the editor had left Christian um and they hadn't uh appointed anyone else and so I I kind of I I didn't go begging but I almost went to the MD and said look I, I've got to go and do something else because I'm I'm you know falling to bits and you know can I and we sort of agreed that I would take up fast forward and although i in a lot of ways, it was, again, something I'd not done before. It was, I did that for about three years, but that was, again, i just learned an incredible amount in that period because i you know, I'd grown up in an era where, you know, talking carburetors and traditional ignition systems, and to move from that into sort of more modern technology where you're talking ECUs and waste gates and control valves. And, yeah, it was a real learning process but I loved it and again it sent me off on lots of other different directions and and again that was an interesting time because the magazines then were starting to move away from with with the more modern cars were moving away from what we now call the max power era that was starting to wind down and the cars were becoming much more performance focused again and more sort of track focused and so I sort of had this unwritten task of taking fast forward Away from being, you know, body kits and back to being tuning and performance and speed. So, yeah, it was great. I loved it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I completely blanked that era, but that's, uh, that was when, uh, Future purchased A&S. Am I right in thinking that you were, that was where you were when over that transition? Um, yeah. I can't remember what you were yeah. editing when I was meeting you for lunch in Bath.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was, uh, so I was doing Fast Forward in 2004 and then Future bought out ANS Publishing, the UK side certainly, in 2005. And so, yeah, I, the ones they kept on, we were all shipped off down to Bath to go and work for the next sort of nine years. And um, that was an eye-opener because I'd gone from having one boss to countless bosses. And that was, a again, a steep learning curve beat, being sort of taken into this huge media organization at that point that um did things in a very different way but you learn to adapt and find ways of doing what you did before but just slightly differently and i mean they were they were i mean uh, at that point i had a really good publisher called pete stothard who was really supportive and you know he he helped us get stuff done he found money to buy project cars um he got loads of things done it was brilliant really good
0: yeah, it was um, sort of, kind of the, I guess, a last hurrah of the magazine industry. But it was a point at which it was still um, pushing forward, regardless. And maybe it shouldn't have been. Maybe it should have been, It had slightly more than one eye on what was happening on the World Wide Web and stuff like that at the time. But it was. It seemed like a good time for magazines. Like the articles that were getting written clearly had budget behind them, and the magazines were um i don't know everything was 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 kind of had a confidence to it which i quite liked and then you the, the events as well i mean your your events team were based down in bath and the events seemed to be growing um from uh from both retro cars point of view and, and sort of everything else it seemed to seemed to all be coming together um well future and then future did what future does and uh started to fold up i'm guessing but um, I'm going to just take a slight step back before we get into the murky world of magazines and what the hell happened to them, um, and get into the world of what the hell does a publisher, uh, an editor, actually do on a day-to-day basis?
1: Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, uh, to use the, the, I mean, it's a, such a overused phrase, but you're, you're the jack of all trades and master at none. You just have to do everything, um, particularly now. So, my it depends on the the sort of the production cycle of a you know a, we have a sort of three or four week production cycle at the moment on Classic Four, but it depends where you are with that. But generally, your day involves around commissioning photo shoots, attending photo shoots, writing up features, doing interviews, especially over the phone these days, uh, speaking to advertisers, speaking to readers, speaking to potential advertisers. Uh, Writing endless reports and emails, um, doing uh, a a ridiculous amount of promotion of the magazines through social media and through the other sort of online platforms, Um, doing forward planning. So, you know, you're trying to sort of plan issues that might be going on in uh, sort of six to eight months time, particularly ones where they've been promoted so they have additional spend on them in the the news agents and the supermarkets where they maybe they're getting a different you know position on the news agent on the actual racking so you have to do something special for those i mean there's just it just rolls on but you you just i mean it's great because it means you don't do the same thing every time you're doing always doing something differently
0: yeah each each issue is a uh, a new issue which is uh, more than a um, most people have. Yeah. Most other people seem yeah, to do the same thing know, every day.
1: Your your sort of dream is to sort of every new issue do, you you want to make it better than the last one, and you also want to make it something different as well. And I mean, people do that in different ways. But you, I mean, the worst thing is to try and just retread what you're doing before. But you kind of are in a way. You just have to look at it. You try and take it on from a different angle so that you you sort of keeping traditional longer. And readers still interested, but also at the same time, hopefully trying to bring in new readers as well.
0: Yeah, I guess it's um a case of gradual, slow evolution rather than revolution. If you want to change something about a magazine,
1: I I think it's difficult. I mean, it because the way the the, the publishing industry is now, I think it's really difficult to revolutionise a magazine. I, I I think there's too much at stake now. They can't take that kind of risk. So. You could you could do a new launch of something, but I think to actually reference an existing brand or existing title now is probably I, can, I can't think of more than a few examples off the top of my head where publishers to do that. I mean, it's you, you know, you're much more aware of your readership and the, the marketplace than you were back then. So as, as sad as it sounds, there is a lot less risk taking now, I think
0: yeah which is which is interesting um given that uh possibly more risk taking may be beneficial but then it it's too big a risk i guess because you're you're no longer betting you know perhaps a, a couple of months of poor distribution and then it'll pick back up again you're literally betting the life of a magazine on whatever it is you're doing
1: yeah but there's there there are different opportunities so i mean mm. You and I talked about this, but obviously, I mean, the, the independent magazine sector is a whole different ball game. And so, you you know, where it's, it's not your livelihood at stake, you can take risks and try something different. And I think that's where certainly for a lot of people, that is where there are opportunities to try different things and try and sort of do something that fires up people's imagination in a different way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've got on my list of things here to talk about the current state of magazines, but um, uh, I was going to leave it towards the uh, end, but I think this sounds like an ideal time to dive into it. So, so the market's kind of strange at the moment in comparison to what it once was. Um, there's still an awful lot of quality writers and photographers and editors out there producing really good magazines for an audience that loves them uh but also at the same time there's kind of a vanishing amount of magazines um which i which is odd and interesting in equal measure and saddening to a certain degree um that magazines are getting shuttered when there's still an audience for them it's just not the audience that there once was but at the same time on the flip side there's all these independent magazines and i mean we uh, we we failed to launch one, but we attempted to launch one at probably the worst time we could have launched one. Um, and uh, uh, it was it's a thing that people are doing; they are launching new magazines with new ideas and seeing what flies. So so how do you how are you feeling about kind of the magazine, the whole magazine industry, rather than sort of the the non-independent magazine industry, which does seem to struggle a bit, even though it's going, keeping going.
1: I mean, the, at the moment, because of the the what's been happening over the I mean, it, it's it. You know, it's been pretty dire. I mean, it, unfortunately, yeah, a lot of the businesses have had to close some titles that were were at risk, and because of the the you know the declining the economy, they that's sort of tipped them into making the decision that we just can't justify doing this anymore. So yeah, it, unfortunately, it's not. I mean, it's not just the the automotive sector; it's across all the board that you know they've had to close titles, which is really sad. But at the same time, there are people bubbling away with ideas and the means to do it that will that will start something new and so I'm hoping that there are lots of positives that come out of all of this, and actually people it does give people the impetus to say, "Well, I'm just going to get on with this and do it now and yeah, and so you know the the strongest titles in in publishing will continue and will survive. There will be new stuff to come out, I'm sure of it.
0: Yeah, I was um, thinking on this the other day that um, the this this whole not not quite a perfect match, but it 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 books versus cinema versus plays, uh, and it also like the whole vinyl versus CDs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, in that a new thing comes along and it just takes the entire market with it. So when the silent movies and the talkies then followed, you know that they, they took away from um plays and theater but then if you look at what plays and uh, what the theater is doing now it's really healthy and in fact in some ways the the movie industry has fed back into it and its actors have gone back to the theater and there's like a, a certain level of um quality about it but also there's a certain level of being able to enter it very cheaply in that you can go and join your local amateur dramatic society and you can't necessarily make your own feature film um and i think that the magazine market hasn't quite got to that point, but it's getting there. Like, we've, we've had the era of zines and things like that, particularly in the music industry, as, as you're very, very well aware of. Um, and, and like, this sort of homespun publishing and the internet and the world became that for a while. And then Facebook and, and Instagram and stuff have come along and eaten that as well. So that's kind of disappeared. And these people still want an outlet. And Facebook and Instagram is not the outlet for that stuff. And I think that um, the independent publishing and the accessibility of independent publishing is going to be that. And I think you're right that there's going to be a fallout of people from the current magazine industry that's having a shrinkage at the moment and the group of very enthusiastic people that want to get their voice out there and they're going to collide in the not too distant future. Um, And there, I think, will be a kind of weird resurgence in the printed product. It just won't be the same as it once was. It'll have to be something different. It'll have to be structured somewhat differently. Um that's my thought on it. Um and podcast listeners will know that I'm always right.
1: (laughs) I mean the 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 independent magazine industry is I mean it's it's the last sort of five six years it's it's definitely it's had a definite resurgence um because it's there are various platforms that have made it easy to put magazines out there and so there's a huge support network and, uh, uh, from the automotive side that's not really happened i mean there are some really good ones now but this is we're only sort of talking in the last sort of 12 to 18 months and so mm. for for our magazines i think it um, will be some good one on stream soon that people will get really excited about because the the, the network the, the you know the facilities to actually do them now is all there so that if you haven't come from that background publishing background, the tools are there to help you to actually do it if that's what you want to do and if you can get that passion down properly onto something printed that people think is desirable and want to engage with then yeah it's a no-brainer.
0: Yeah I think the the business models around all these things are changing as well I mean I noticed it even from a A website point of view that um you know we we get blamed for to a certain degree for killing the uh, magazine industry um and it's a reasonable reasonable complaint i guess um but it uh, we didn't do it on our own um but i also think that in turn like the the website lunch has been eaten by other media as well like on on the internet still but it but then youtube has come along and suddenly the the democratization of being able to film and and do that just on your phone or with with relatively cheap stuff suddenly everyone's got their own tv show and it's sort of that's kind of come back around that that there's um yeah a a bit more of a democracy in terms of who gets to film car stuff now and there isn't so much um gatekeeping as there once was because it used to just be top gear or whatever special dvd was being made by option or someone like that so yeah it, the the industry itself from my point of view it's sort of a relative insider slash outsider um i, I think it has a healthy future but i think it's got a, a period of time particularly with this covid stuff of um gonna be uh a difficult period but i think it will be transitioning into something hopefully relatively healthy um it just has a slight um it's like period of adjustment I would say
1: yeah I mean I mean all industries are going through that at the moment I mean it's but I mean, yeah. I mean every time there's a, a new sort of technology or platform that comes along it, it it's an opportunity and it's just another way of getting your passion and your enthusiasm out there so I'm I mean I'm not blinkered by any means I'm, I'm I am sort I of try and embrace all of it and you know mm. I think it, that there's room for everything basically it's it's just making sure whether the main medium you focus on whether it's youtube or it's print you're just trying to do the very best you can in that particular aspect to bring people in and you use the other platforms to help draw them in as well
0: yeah definitely definitely so um and this is going to be a question that's true across all of these platforms um for you what makes a good feature car what, when you get sent lots of cars i should imagine all people proposing features what makes you go ah this is the one i want to feature it it's quite
1: often it's nothing to do with the 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 actual car itself it's it's the story behind it so it's if there's no story behind a car it quite often it just turns people cold because it may look amazing but you know if the guy that built it just did it on a whim there's and there's no story or you know he paid someone out, or he or she paid someone else to do it and the guy that did it just did it because that's what they were told to do that makes it really difficult to then try and pass on that sort of passion to your audience so it it almost doesn't matter what the car is it's the story behind it and yes there are sort of you know there are cars out there that everyone remembers for being outlandish or game-changing but quite often when you actually start digging down into why it's because the person or people that built it had a particular vision and the passion to see it through so that's my argument but I mean I'm you know it, that you can build a car that will go down a storm on instagram but there'll be the next day there'll be something else to replace it it's the ones that people remember that's the ones you're always running after and trying to chase say so please 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 you know we want to capture what you've created in print or online or wherever but that's the mission
0: yeah that's good the uh, and, and when you're putting together your magazine how do you decide what's going to be the cover car do you decide that kind of before the whole thing's together like you know this car that you're going to get featured that's got to be the cover car or do you go through the photos and go oh that's a very compelling picture um i'm going to stick that on
1: quite often i everyone works differently but certainly with classic ford um the cars that are on the cover have been specifically and we generally will try and theme and issue so we we don't just put an issue out there generally it's got a theme behind it whether it's a you know a particular tuning angle or there's an anniversary or you, yeah. know, you know we're focusing on a particular job like resto mod for example i mean talking to calumet retro power recently um in one of your other podcasts so we you know we'll pick a theme and then run with that for that issue and then so the cover car has to kind of encapsulate whatever that thing's about and occasionally We'll do, uh, you know, we'll actually do a specific group shot that sums that up, or it may be more of a collage tile cover. But um, yeah, it's very rarely now would we shoot a car for the cover just to put that on the cover. It has to back everything else up that's inside it as well. I
0: mean, it's a complete package at that point, I'm guessing. So uh, that makes it uh, all make yeah, sense.
1: It it your, it, people, I've... I, I don't believe people would generally now would pick up and pay for a magazine just because of one feature car in it. I think, you know, it's so much harder to get them to spend their money with you now because everything's available for free online. So even if you've got a a feature on a car that hasn't yet broken onto the internet so you've got an exclusive on it, really that car has to sell the rest of the issue. So you're not just going off the fact that there's one car on there that you like the look of you you're actually buying the whole magazine because you think well actually i want to read about this i want to learn about that i want to know how to do this that's that's the goal of it really
0: do you um well actually i was about to put words in your mouth um what do magazines print magazines offer over and above um instagram or or sort of blog features on uh on cars for from your point of view
1: you you can go into so much more detail you you know you can put together a more rounded story because I mean I, I I write for speed hunters and I really enjoy writing feature cars and stories for them because it's completely different to write for a magazine you're almost writing a, a story based around images rather than actually trying to thread you're trying to thread a story together but based around images whereas when you write a feature for a magazine you're actually creating a story that then flows through the images on the page. But because of that, you can create and construct a whole different world that draws people in in a much more involved way. And, you know, through the use of things like box outs and additional features, you create this, I'm using this word too much, but you're creating a world that people get drawn into and lose themselves in. And it's much more engaging, I think, than engaging with a, a blog post and I, I it's just a different way of doing it it's not necessarily better or worse but you know your the brain just doesn't cope well with just doing one thing all the time you you don't look at instagram and not look at anything else you look at everything now don't you so yeah we're just one facet of it yeah. but you've got the added pressure of actually well look you know we want you to pay for this magazine whether it's a subscription or you you just picked it up off the shelf in the newsagent so in a way, you've got a harder job, but that's yeah, the challenge.
0: I think uh, the, the challenge is there, but the what you're saying, if, if someone is paying for this, then you are offering more in-depth information than they're going to get elsewhere. Um, I used to get quite frustrated with reading features that were effectively just the um, specs of the car, just kind of reprinted over 1,500 words. Um, whereas occasionally, not occasionally, more, more often than not, you would get features that were, that would drag you in, as you say, to why someone built it or what it was about a car that attracted and attracted them to it. And that in turn would bring you in as well. And I, I from a retro point of view that I thought was quite important, I should imagine it's true also within the, the classic Ford world. But for, from the retro point of view, I, I found that I was looking at cars that I had no personal attachment to until I read the article and by the end of the article I wanted it and I think that's the that's the magic trick that you don't necessarily get from someone posting up their own build thread and and, and as you say the, the image-led blog articles it's like look at this thing you look at it and you go that's very nice and you carry on whereas I think with the, the magazine stuff to use your word they do drag you into the world of that car whether or not that's a single mark um, magazine or multi-mark like retro cars was.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it, it again goes right back to what I was saying about it has to have a good story behind it. Um, yeah, I mean, if if you, uh, I, I'm sure I've been guilty of doing this before with putting features in Classic Four that maybe would have been glorified tech specs, um, but I I sure as hell would go out my way not to do that now because you you are so painfully aware of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I mean it's not a thing against that like, that, that's kind of you know you sometimes you have to write a feature and actually the only interesting thing about the car is the tech which is why as you say you try and pursue the personal story and, and, and the reasonings behind it um, so it wasn't sort of a dig at that but it was more I, I found the ones that were that did have a story that dragged me into why someone had a car it was um, yeah it, it kind of influenced my choices on what cars I wanted and, and and all that kind of thing which I think is the power of the magazine um, in, in many ways
1: yeah absolutely yeah i mean we the one that always jumps out or the one i remember more than anything uh, a couple of years ago we did a a feature on a guy called paul owens that created um, uh, a replica of roger clark's rac winning uh escort the the cossack card Do you remember the cossack hairspray for men livery yeah. yeah yeah um and it, it I mean it could have just been oh that's a really nice replica but actually you know very early in on in the in the sort of process of arranging a feature with him he produced this photo of him as a ten-year-old stood by the door of the car with royal Park in it and he met him and that just sort of sowed this whole seed to create this amazing and so all of a sudden as a reader you're like oh this... you can just see where it's come from and that I mean that story was a gift for us because a because Roger Clark was you know to many people he's still such a a a huge rallying hero but also because you know the guy fulfilled his dream of building this car that he'd first seen you know 30 years
0: yeah that's amazing that's an amazing achievement to to have a dream and fully realize it um I'm going to oh actually I'm forgot to ask you this earlier what, what are you currently driving what's your what is your your current interest in cars if you have any i, I know t- times can be tough for the uh uh car enthusiast at the moment
1: my uh so in the in down in my lockup i've got um, uh, a a really early martin cortina in 1963 uh deluxe um which at the moment is untouched that's not deliberate it's just time. I, i've got this i I'm not the only one that has this. I hasten to add, but I've got this annoying obsession with first year builds of cars so I, it probably doesn't happen as much now, but certainly in the sixties and seventies that when when a new car came out, they hadn't quite worked things out properly, and so you'll find that the very first sort of few months or even a year of builds the cars are slightly different to what followed after as they sort of work through things that didn't quite work and so there'll be tiny little details that you won't find on later models and you most people wouldn't notice them because and also because the cars being the earliest the of you know they re- very rarely survive now they're usually the first ones to disappear so yeah so I, I've always had this annoying fascination for it just goes back to when I had minis I mean the, the re- very early minis they they said they used to pressed the, the shells out of lighter steel. So all the racers back then used to try and hunt down these 59 build minis because they were meant to be lighter. And there were loads of little different details on them like the door handles or the, the seals and things. So that sort of followed through to the, the cars I've had since. So this Cortina is a uh, you know, one of the first year builds so it's got lots of different details on some of the later cars. And so I get i get a bit too excited about things like that i'm <laughs> afraid but at some point in the future when i've got a bit of time i'll actually start to not rip into this that's the wrong word but go through it and put it back on the road as it, as my sort of the, the how i can see it in my head
0: that's great that's uh i'm looking forward to seeing that so i've got a I've got a couple of um well I, I always think of them as emergency questions in case uh conversation starts to falter but um they always end up just being thrown in at the end because um there's always something to talk about with car people but um i do i do like them as questions so i'm going to ask you a couple uh what's the fastest you've been in a car
1: um yeah so this going back to retro cars uh we did a, a group feature on I can't remember the feature angle, but it would have been something like historic race cars, and this is at Bruntingthorpe proving ground, which is, if if people aren't aware, it's it's an old World War Two airfield that is now used for testing, and then so they've got a two-mile-long straight, and it 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 back then when we had a bit more money, and it, it wasn't actually expensive to hire. You could hire part of the runway, and it was really good for getting group shots of cars because it had so much room. Anyway, the uh, I i apologize to the guy because i've forgotten his name but the guy took me out in his other tr7 v8 race car and we went up the the airfield in it and went flat out and obviously there's no speedometer but anyway we it, we it just felt completely natural i didn't think we were going that fast and when we got back and i said oh how fast do you think we were going he said well it's been timed at 175 so that's the fastest i've been in a car not uh, not driving thankfully but but it just felt it was bizarre it just felt completely relaxed and i was chatting away with him and he wasn't having to concentrate particularly but but yeah but um i am i don't think i've told my family that before so uh, <laughs> hopefully they don't listen
0: uh, uh, that's, uh, that's superb um uh what's your favorite car you've had the chance to drive
1: Ooh. um i i very rarely drive other people's cars because you even if they say we to have a go i'll always try and decide because if someone spent the best decades and a <laughs> huge part of their lives building something they really don't want some idiot getting in it and writing it off so i i i, I tell you what i really enjoyed driving um back in the early 2000s before retro cars we bought a uh, capri 2.8 engine and i'd never driven one before and we turned it into a track day car because that was the the rage back then and it was quite cheap to do i mean the car cost 600 quid i think we built it for in the end just under two grand. but even though it was a dedicated track car it was so nice to drive and i I had any excuse I would get in it and, and just go off somewhere because it was just lovely, really nice. And it had no in no interior, it was all stripped out with a roll cage, bucket seats, and could have been horrendous, but it was just I loved it. And I've I've never managed to recreate how well that car drove in anything I've owned since. And that <laughs> annoys me. It wasn't a magic trick. It it was just one of those cars that was just sorted with with minimal work and it was brilliant it was so lovely to drive and yeah we I mean we would drive all over the country in it go and do a track day you know sort of run around in that and then drive home again as if we hadn't been anywhere it was brilliant I loved it and the car is still around it's it sort of surfaces now and again which is really good to know that's so yeah good. that was that's if I could recreate that now that'd be perfect
0: maybe the uh, maybe the Cortina cool is that car
1: well it, i don't <laughs> think i mean that's it's, again a, a, a 60s cortina drives way better than you think it should um you if you've never driven one before you you'd be amazed but but it's completely different to driving a you know a, a late 70s capri that even then the, the difference is immeasurable
0: that's a uh, good good old cars. Well, Thank you very much, Simon, for your time this morning. Um, no, thank you. I will happily talk to you whenever about anything, because uh, I always enjoy talking to you. Um, uh, so you're, you're still on uh, Classic Ford, so people should definitely go and uh, support um, Classic Ford uh, as and when you can, because we're allowed out of the house now, so you can go and do those things. Um, and uh, yes, thank you for your time.
1: No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Um, We'll be back uh, next time. Now, I've got two lined up, and I don't know who's going to be first, so I'm not going to say. It'll be a surprise.
1: There you go.